0: This is Waterworks, an Aquatic History
1: of Milwaukee.
0: Hey Anthony. Hey Chris. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and start by introducing yourself.
2: Sure. Uh, I'm Anthony Vicari, and I'm a graduate student in the History Department at UWM. Great. Do you want to introduce yourself?
0: Right, I probably should. Uh, This is Chris Cantwell. I'm an assistant professor of history here at UWM and the host of Waterworks. Uh, And what do you have for us today, Anthony?
2: So I have a fraction. Okay. Two-thirds.
0: All right. What's that about?
2: So about two-thirds of all refugees settled in Wisconsin since 2000 end up in Milwaukee. There's been about 16,000 refugees settled in the state since that time, which means over 10,000 refugees have found their way into the city.
0: Okay, that's pretty interesting. Um, But what does that have to do with water?
2: Well, often we think about refugees as a result of war catastrophe. But recently I spoke to someone who got me thinking about the ways that these movements stem from a crisis around water. How do you mean? So, for example, between 2015 and 2017, the U.S. let in about 21,000 of the more than 13.5 million Syrians who had been displaced by the Syrian civil war. A couple hundred of these ended up in Milwaukee as well. So, I heard about some of these numbers because they were in the news, but, like a lot of people, I presume that the conflict in the Middle East had been driven by oil. But then I met Dean Amhouse, who is the President of the Water Council here in Milwaukee, and what he points out is the origins of the Syrian refugee crisis lay in the water policy really? yeah, in nineteen seventy five Turkey built a dam that reduced major water supplies to Syria, which then prompted a crisis and eventually conflict when a severe drought hit in two thousand and six
3: My fear, and this has been played out even by a recent report by the Department of Defense is, and it's already been happening for decades, is when there are water shortages and there's drought that causes food issues, which causes um, conflicts, which becomes disruptive, and it becomes a geopolitical issue. That is very concerning, and it's playing out right now. And, and you can trace back to even things that you know, occurred with Syria a long time ago can point
0: to a drop that was the trigger to get things going as well. Wow. So what Dean's saying is that a lot of the crises that we think have military or political origins are actually tied to issues around climate and the environment.
2: That's right. And Dean points this out. We're so concerned with resources that are renewable, like oil, when we should be concerned about resources that are essential, like water.
3: When it comes to you're thinking about oil, and this is evident right now, there are a lot of alternatives to oil, and there is a greater effort to reduce our oil and gas usage. So there's wind, and there's air, and wind, and sun, and, and so on. But when it comes to water, there's no alternative at all. We can't point to something else the water that has been on this planet has been on this planet forever it basically just gets recycled and moved from one place to another place another place what is changing is in what form is that water in the sense of frozen less frozen and that then gets into our oceans which causes other issues. And then it's also the quality of that water. So how do we deal with it? But we can't go and manufacture something else to replace it. So that's why I think it is just even more precious than oil.
0: That's really powerful. And I totally appreciate Dean's point. But I'm still not totally sure while we're talking about this on a show about the aquatic history of Milwaukee.
2: Well, Dean is so knowledgeable about this issue because, as I mentioned earlier, he's the president of the Water Council, which is based right here in Milwaukee. And as part of his role, he works with leaders from across the globe to advocate for sustainable growth that protects our finite resources. In fact, Milwaukee has become something of a water hub. Here in the city, we have a unique density of water tech companies, academic programs devoted to freshwater science, and utility companies that have all made Milwaukee a leader in water policy. And how that happened is the story I want to tell you today.
0: That sounds great. Why don't you go ahead and take it from here?
1: So as we learned in previous episodes, Milwaukee has not always been so stellar when it came to caring about water. But the city's industrial might, which, remember, was made possible in part by its access to the lake and rivers, also came pollution. But in many ways, the area was just an awful steward of its waterways throughout the 20th century. When
4: I worked in the chem lab, one of my jobs was, I think, weekly to go down to where their discharge pipes were at the Milwaukee River and take samples and then measure the amount of suspended solids,
1: measure the amount of dissolved solids. This is Dennis Krasinski, who had worked for the Kohler Corporation in the 60s as a high school student, and part of his work involved monitoring just how bad the river had gotten. But when I did that, there was just this
4: huge delta of what looked like asteroids I mean you know colored all the colors of all the metals in the world you know because there's cobalt there's chrome and there's uh ground glass of of all kinds for the enamels and I mean you know it sparkled.
1: This was a great example of how the focus in America at the time was on prosperity and not taking care of the earth. After World War II workers returned home to factories and their families the baby boom strained the system on a regular basis. The water treatment system overflowed nearly ten percent of the time. This filled the rivers with a toxic sludge of human waste and factory byproducts. The Milwaukee Sentinel even penned a multipart series in nineteen sixty six titled The River is a Slum. The spark for change came from Wisconsin's own Gaylord Nelson, who made environmentalism his signature issue. A Democrat from Clear Lake, Wisconsin, Nelson served several terms as Wisconsin State Senator before going on to be elected as governor in nineteen fifty eight and then Senator in 1962. At a time when the Civil Rights Movement, the Women's Liberation Movement, and other cultural revolutions were underway, Nelson became an advocate for the environment, and he sought to build a social movement in support of the earth as well. I had a chance to meet with Nelson biographer Bill Christopherson for coffee in Milwaukee's Bayview neighborhood. It was a rainy autumn afternoon, so we were forced inside the busy anodyne coffee roasters.
5: When he was governor, The Republicans pretty much ran the legislature, but he had one visionary program that that was called the Outdoor Recreation Action Program. It was gonna raise $50 million, and it was used to acquire recreation land and wildlife conservation land and and, uh, conservation easements and state parks. At the time, unheard of, it was cutting edge.
1: This legislative achievement of Nelson's established him as an environmentalist. He got a lot of national attention for the Outdoor Recreation Action Program and other states began to replicate it. By the time that he ran for Senate, his environmental record was a big part of what he ran on.
5: When he got elected to the Senate in 1962, even before he took office, he went to see Bobby Kennedy, who was the Attorney General, but he was also JFK's main political guy. And he, he made a pitch to Bobby about conservation. He said, you know, I've had this great success in Wisconsin with this. It, it's enormously popular, people really support it. Uh, the, the president should take on this issue and, and own this conservation thing and talk about it and sell it. And he suggested that maybe he go on a speaking tour across the country and talk about it. And that actually happened. His goal was to, to get the environment on, on the national political agenda, ideally at the top, but at least to get it in the mix.
1: That trip occurred in September 1963. Nelson got Kennedy to join him in Ashland, Wisconsin, where he intended this to be the unveiling of a new environmental movement. He
5: said that he thought, well, this is it. We've got all three television networks. There are only three cameras you needed at the time.
1: Now, unfortunately, the press didn't see it that way.
5: The environmental part of it kind of got buried, and and Gaylord felt like Kennedy wasn't really into that issue that much anyway. It didn't really blossom like Gaylord thought it would.
1: Those same social movements for civil rights and against the war in Vietnam that inspired Nelson also tended to dominate the headlines.
5: He went back, he was kind of disappointed that, that it hadn't really caught fire.
1: When President Kennedy was assassinated just a few months later, that put a hold on Senator Nelson's politicking.
3: President Kennedy is dead, Gordon. The this is official word. The president is dead. The president, ladies and gentlemen,
1: is dead at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. This set back Senator Nelson's agenda. He continued to work with the Lyndon Johnson administration, and in September 1965, Nelson proposed a national lakeshore to include the Apostle Islands in northern Wisconsin. But this was overlooked by Johnson, where in 1966, he urged the creation of eight other parks and recreation areas across the country. Nelson continued to push forward with the protection of not only the Apostle Islands, but all waters around the state. He saw problems in the eastern Great Lakes and wanted to save Lakes Michigan and Superior. This is Senator Nelson himself, commenting on the major pollution issues that he observed in the Great Lakes.
3: The fact of the matter is that uh... The Lake Michigan is becoming polluted. It is an interstate uh, problem. Uh, Michigan has sat there and uh, watched uh, the destruction of Lake Erie. And uh, with the seriousness of the problem we have in Lake Michigan, we should be, bring into the, uh, into the problem or to the solution of the problem, all of the available resources there are. And I don't see how it's possible to uh, solve this problem at all without uh, participation with the uh, federal government and cooperation with the states.
1: Nelson reintroduced the bill for legislation in 1967 to add the apostles to the National Park Service. It passed later that year, but again, the act's passage failed to launch the social movement that he had hoped for. Then he had a lightbulb moment. He looked around and saw the teach-ins that were happening on college campuses around the country about Vietnam. He thought, why don't we do a teach-in about the environment? Maybe we can do that to get young people involved. By 1970, the idea had taken shape. This is Bill Christopherson again, discussing the first Earth Day
5: idea it was later on that that he announced there was gonna be an environmental teacher on April twenty second all on campuses all across the country. He he did that in a speech which got a little wire story, a few paragraphs maybe, that ran around the country. And the response was overwhelming. All of a sudden his office was just inundated with letters and phone calls and contacts from people who wanted to know how they could get involved. And it wasn't just campuses, it was citizen groups, it was high school, elementary schools, just a real outpouring.
1: As a senator, Nelson had traveled a lot. He had sensed from going around the country and giving speeches that pollution was just a terrible thing. Wherever he went, he'd hear stories about the awful environmental conditions the people had to live with.
5: And all these things that, that were, were going on, and he, he sensed that there was support there if anybody would tamp it. And and so it it turned out when he came up with the Earth Day idea that that it just caught fire like crazy Mm -hmm. to the point where his office couldn't begin to handle it. Hadn't thought of Earth Day at the time. And in Congress, there were so many requests for people to give speeches on on Earth Day. Congress went out of session Mm -hmm. so they could all go home and do it.
1: On the first Earth Day, People were involved in river cleanups, tree plantings, and yes, political speeches. Right here in Milwaukee, Marquette University had a great outdoor theatrical performance about the harm that humans were causing Mother Earth.
5: Yeah, he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. On, on Earth Day, 20 million people, at the time that was 10% of the population of the country, did something on Earth Day. He, he could not have imagined that that would happen.
1: But here's the thing. Even on the first Earth Day event, Senator Nelson was looking forward to the future. He still wasn't satisfied. This is Senator Nelson giving a speech on the first Earth Day in 1970.
0: By any standard of environmental measurement, any standard, the United States is overpopulated now because we have demonstrated that we are either unwilling or unable or both thus far. To manage the waste from 200 million people, what will it be like with 300 million, 30 years from now?
1: Yet while Senator Nelson helped make environmentalism a national issue, it seemed as though it was all for naught at the local level. The rivers were, were open, stinking sewers. This is Dennis Grzynski again, who you'll remember tested river water for the Kohler Corporation early in his career, but by 1990, he become a commissioner with the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District, where he had a front row seat to just how bad the rivers had become. 50 or 60 times a year, when it rained,
4: essentially whenever it rained, the, the sewers overflowed and the sewers were full of both the, the rainwater, the stormwater, and shit and piss up and down the rivers, where all the places are that either the sanitary or the separated sewers had their overflow points, bad stuff flowed in. In the in the biggest of the biggest storms, it might be 95 or 98 percent rainwater, uh, storm water. But the reality is, is when it rains, everything that's on the surface, you know, every non-human creature that shits or pisses is doing that out of doors, and so much of the surface in the several hundred square mile service area is impervious or it's lawns which may absorb the first quarter inch of rain, but after that might
1: as well be concrete. Whatever's there runs off. As we've heard before, water is political and this time was no different. John Norquist came on the scene in 1988 when he succeeded Henry Meyer as mayor of Milwaukee, he made urban design the hallmark of his administration, which included cleaning up the waterways. Local historian John Gerda notes about how Milwaukee Mayor John Norquist began a quest to clean up the city, beginning with the removal of the North Avenue Dam.
6: I think a lot of that came from John Norquist. He was really anti-dam, and, you know, like a lot of environmentalists. And they, were, they choke rivers, and they're temporary structures anyway, because you have all this silt building up behind them. So in 1990, 1991 through there, it was the water was drawn down to make it easier to do some, some work on
1: it. Dennis Krasinski, who worked with Norquest while on the MMSD, agrees. He was a pro-environmentalist. His wife, Susan Mudd, was head of
4: Citizens for a Better Environment in Wisconsin. He became sort of a new urbanist. He understood the role of the environment. He understood how, unfortunately, cities in America were designed for cars, not people.
1: He got it, he knew it. And to the extent that he didn't, his wife made sure he did. Norquist started with the North Avenue Dam. Since at least 1835, Milwaukee had restricted the flow of its major river to power the area mills and factories. But in 1997, Norquist had the dam removed to increase the river's flow. Though he's a historian of Milwaukee, author John Gerda remembers the moment personally.
6: Then what happened? There was some there was some pushback, and I recall that looking at the river from the North Avenue Bridge, it it was a mudflat. It it, it was a mess, and it's a little, little smelly too, and a lot of flies. Uh, so, uh, but before long, it may have taken a season or two. I mean, nature abhors of vacuum. Nature came in there just like gangbusters, you know, and just revegetated uh, all that uh, that mudflat down there. And there were a lot, of, a, a lot of activism around cleanups. I can recall seeing that too, garbage shopping carts and tires. I'm not sure how much was dragged out of there, but it was a lot because people had used that as a dumping ground for a very long time. So, And, and Norquist was uh, kind of, a, in many ways, the, the, in the vanguard of people saying, well,
1: let's take it out. Now around the same time that the North Avenue Dam was removed, the gaze was then fixed on cleaning up the river to make it more usable for the community. Dennis Gruzinski recalls that the area around Riverside Park became a particular site for activism. At the time of the North Avenue Dam's removal, the park was largely an abandoned plot of land that people avoided. You
4: know, otherwise neighborhood folks just didn't use the park. I mean, A, the, the river was not attractive. It was still an open, stinking sore. And B, it didn't feel safe.
1: But as the river began to revitalize, the area suddenly became desirable.
4: Rumors arose that the county was looking to sell that part of the park. They had already transferred part of the park for expansion of the Riverside High School. Part of the park had been dramatically transformed. Ravines had been filled in to provide level space for their athletic playing fields. The park was just dramatically changed. The rumor was... UWM may want to build dorms, high-rise dorms there. And some folks in the, in the neighborhood said, this is our park, they can't do this. And they
1: brainstormed, how can we prevent this from happening? It was at this point that Dennis banded with a number of other Milwaukee residents to discuss how to save the park. We need to make it be used as a park.
4: How can we do that? We could bring groups of school children into the park. That essentially will A, provide a good and useful use of the park, you know, encourage folks to improve the park. Homeless folks, drug dealers, aren't going to be interested in hanging out in a park where there's a class full of kids coming through. They want to be where nobody's going to bother them. What we can do is we can start bringing a classroom of kids from Maryland School or from Hartford Avenue School at UWM to the park, because it's close enough that a
1: classroom of kids could walk to the park. The concept of using the river had astounding success. These efforts snowballed into the Urban Ecology Center at Riverside Park, and Dennis came to serve as president of the center's board. The single classroom that the Urban Ecology Center had begun with quickly filled within a few years. They had expanded to additional locations at Washington Park and a third and newest one in the Menominee Valley. This third location is just amazing. It's beautiful. And it's a fantastic example of how Milwaukee is cleaning up its act. Dennis, in particular, notes how the Menominee Valley location intentionally tries to look like the area before the city's development.
4: It looks like glacial moraines and it's been sculpted, it's covered in trees and prairie, has um, ephemeral temporary ponds, has a mile or so of the Hank Aaron Trail, has probably a couple miles of hiking trail. It looks wonderful. It's an incredible, incredible place, incredible experience.
1: The attention that Milwaukee has been paying to its waterways have already begun to pay dividends.
4: In 1990-91, DNR did a fish shocking project between Riverside and, and Gordon Parks on the Milwaukee River where where the Urban Ecology Center is. So they shocked the river, identified, kept track of the fish. There were carp. They found carp and goldfish or carp. That's all there was. No other species of fish. When the school kids had been brought to the bank of the river and took their little dip nets and looked to see what little life there was among and above the sediments and the banks they basically got ugly poison tolerant slugs. That was what was living in the river and that's why there wasn't anything but carp in the river there wasn't any food for anything else now there are 40-some species of fish in the lower
1: Milwaukee, in the lower
4: Menominee, and the
1: Kinnikinnick. And this, in many ways, is the river we enjoy today. Thanks to the efforts of people like Nelson, Norquist, Krasinski, and the communities that they worked with, the river is now a center of local pride rather than a problem to be managed. And it's through these efforts, historian John Gerda sees a shift in how Milwaukee has come to think about its waterways.
6: Why do you do it? Uh, you do it because we screwed things up, and it's it's making amends, you know, for the extirpation of all these species and reintroducing them. And in the case of the sturgeon, what's so powerful there is that sturgeon are are sort of late bloomers. You know, they don't spawn until they're 20 or 25 years old. The act of faith that's required to believe that you're releasing a little fish, you know, who's going to come back in 25 years to make the next generation. It's a little like planting a tree whose shade you'll never enjoy. And I think that's a very cool statement. We're counting on the the river being clean enough, you know, for them to be able to raise their next generations. So I think that's a powerful statement.
1: Now think for a minute that only 3% of the world's water is considered freshwater. That means when we look at a map and we see all of that blue, only a small, small fraction of that is actually usable by humans. Now, Milwaukee has an opportunity to continue to show the world how to be good stewards of that water, as it has at its doorstep 20% of the world's freshwater supply in the Great Lakes. And as historian John Gerda notes, Milwaukee has grown to become one of the world's foremost stewards of that supply.
6: Milwaukee's done a lot of things right and we don't give ourselves enough credit for it. That starts with the lakefront. Look at the other Great Lakes cities, what they've done to their lakefronts. Cleveland is a freeway. Uh, Chicago's got a nice strip of parkland, but it's six lanes or eight lanes in some places removed from the city. And Milwaukee, more than half of the lakefronts in the public domain. And that's something that that was a decision. Milwaukee decided to do that. And that's something that I'm sure there are other Great Lakes cities who envy what Milwaukee has here. And uh, we can be a role model. We can be an example of how they might reintegrate their rivers uh, into the urban scene.
0: Anthony Vicari is a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. How do you
3: know Shiki Clipper? Blow-
0: well, our show today was produced by Anthony Vicari with help from myself and the students of History and New Media at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. This episode featured material from the Milwaukee County Historical Society, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's archive, and the Internet Archive. Music for this episode is by Poddington Bear and the Blue Dot Sessions. While well, our concluding song is A Yankee Ship Came Down the River and comes from the Wisconsin Folk song Collection at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thanks this week go out to John Gerda, Dennis Krasinski, Dean Amhaus, and Bill Christofferson. And an extra special thanks to Ben Barbera of the Milwaukee County Historical Society, whose exhibit, Milwaukee, Where the Waters Meet, inspired this season. Milwaukee, Where the Waters Meets is on display at the Milwaukee County Historical Society from January 13th through April 23rd, 2022. Waterworks is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History and the Milwaukee County Historical Society. For more information about the show, including photographs and documents from the era, check out milwaukeehistory.net slash podcast. And thanks for listening.